0: Today is a very special day, because today is the first time that postdocs talking goes on the road, and we're offering our very first community event here at the People's Meeting. So right here, right now, we are recording our first community event for postdocs talking. And we invite you to engage with two researchers today, and these two researchers are going to tell you stories about human health. And they're true stories and they're science stories. And stories take us to new places and they take us on journeys especially. And today you're going to go on a journey with us. And this is a journey that comes into Denmark and it's a journey that goes outside of Denmark as well. We're gonna go into two very different worlds. One that's quite far away and one that could very well be just down the road. The journey is gonna take us into science And that science is science for the real world and how it impacts society. So the name of our event, and I welcome you warmly to the event, is called Worlds Apart. Two stories of health science for society. Our first storyteller is Kevin Marks. And Kevin is a medical doctor from the United States. He was practicing medicine for over 17 years in the state of Oregon, and about six months after Donald Trump was inaugurated as President of the United States, he moved his family to Odense, Denmark. And he's been studying and finishing now a PhD degree at Aarhus University in the Department of Clinical Medicine. And he's very soon going to be working as a KBU doctor in emergency medicine at Orense University Hospital. So Kevin, welcome to the stage.
1: Thank you. I would like to tell you a story. And my story is about a little girl whose name is Maria. Uh, Maria was a good kid and but when her mother was pregnant she had gestational diabetes and uh, when Maria was born on that day it was the most amazing day of that mom's life and I don't know how many of you here have a baby or have had, seen babies but when they're first born their eyes are a little swollen and it took a little while for Maria to open up her eyes but when she did and the mom saw her eyes she thought to herself oh my god. Uh, She is just everything. Just everything. And I don't know how many of you have been through this experience, but when you have a baby, time goes by very, very quickly. And next thing you know, four months had gone by. Okay? And knock, knock, knock. There is the home health nurse to do an exam on Maria. And because mom had some gestational diabetes, they asked questions to her too, and she screened negative for depression. And they did a direct observable test on Maria. It took about 10 minutes to do. And it said that she's doing great. And the nurse said, they got got for Maria. It's going great. And so that was reassuring. And then two months went by. At six months, basically the same procedures, and we find out that things are going well with Maria. At 10 months, slightly different procedures. Again, the nurse comes to the house, and we find out things are okay. And then, as is common in Denmark, the nurse stops coming to the house. And then at about 15 months, well, uh, now the mom does have some concerns. And her concerns were this, that Maria, is 15 months, but she's saying ma, 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 And the mother is wondering, is she saying these words to me? Uh, she wasn't quite sure. The other thing is that Maria, at 15 months, wasn't really pointing to indicate interest in objects, but she's only 15 months. And the other thing is that her temper tantrums are getting worse, and the mom was concerned about her eye gaze. Like, is she really looking at me Is so much? And so the mother thinks, yeah, I want to get her vision checked. I want her to be seen. So she goes to the general practitioner, okay. And at the general practitioner, um, he's a super nice guy. uh, But you remember, this is a 15-minute visit. And most of that visit was spent gathering the history. And then there's a physical exam towards the end. And during this time, after the doctor thinks about things, he says, you know, Toddlers develop at a different rate, and she is saying the word mama, and um, temper tantrums are pretty darn normal when, for toddlers, and in regards to her vision, I did the best that I could, and I think her vision's okay, so let's wait and see. Let's wait and see. Now, it was not the mother's fault, and it was not the doctor's fault. We are not here to blame mothers. We are not here to blame doctors. But as time went by, Maria um, was causing the preschool teachers to have some concerns, and they thought that she needed further evaluation. So she got a referral to see a pediatric psychiatrist, and at five and a half years of age, Maria was uh, diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. And now the mother kind of thought that this was going to happen. She kind of knew that that's what she was going to hear. But it was hard news, and it did make her cry. In fact, she cried quite a bit. But then she thought to herself and thought, well, you know, she's still my little girl. She is still just everything. So my name is Kevin Marks. I'm a PhD student at Aarhus University, and I used to work as a pediatrician in Oregon. And uh, in the United States, uh, I want to share an idea with you, and that is that we used to use this parent-completed questionnaire called the Ages and Stages Questionnaire to uh, better measure developmental milestones in young children. And what the ASQ did is it would have ask the mother more questions about uh, how Maria is understanding speech and how she is producing speech and the use of her uh, fine motor or small muscles, her big muscles, her tone. It would have asked questions about her problem-solving skill. It would have asked questions about personal social skills and some overall questions too. Okay? This takes about 10, 15 minutes to do, but it's done before the visit. And um, if, if the mother had filled out a good questionnaire before that visit, maybe it would have changed the doctor's decision-making or follow-up plan. There's no guarantee here, but with Maria's case, she probably would have been uh, substantially behind her peers in communication skills and personal social skills. And that information that wasn't there before might have changed decisions. Uh, so an opportunity was missed, and I want to emphasize to you, ike got, faktisk, ike Because in the first three, five years of life, um, the brain is, a lot of things are going on, neuroplasticity is real. It's, the brain is like this hot piece of plastic that can be more easily molded, and uh, you have the child's genes, you have neuron signals, you have neuronal connectivity, and you have the environment surrounding Maria. All these things are kind of interacting and coming together. And at 15 to 18 months, Maria needed more intensive support. So yeah, I'm sorry, but an opportunity was kind of missed. Next, I want to talk to you about another story, and it's um, something that might hit a little more at home. It is a story about Anna. Uh, Anna is a spunky, very vibrant kid. She likes Harry Potter. She is naughty, um, but she's quite clever, doing well at school, actually. And spunky is the word that fits Anna. Uh, many people, uh, To many people, she reminds them of Pippi Langston. Okay? You got the picture? Mm-hmm. And with Anna... Uh, in the last three weeks, the mother has kind of noticed that her spunkiness is gone. She seems tired. And it's this same kind of weather here on Bornholm that it was hot and she was drinking a lot of water. And so um, Anna is taken to the emergency room and she goes to Unse Universität Hospital. And it just so happens that the doctors at this emergency room are really, really good. They get a blood test. They kind of recognize these symptoms just like that. And uh, she is rapidly diagnosed and treated and admitted to the hospital for type 1 diabetes. And so they did a great job. And then as when you have a child, when a child is diagnosed with diabetes, it's a stressful experience. There's so much happening. And uh, time goes by very quickly. And then all of a sudden Anna is 12 and Anna, Anna is now beginning puberty and uh, they on the growth chart for Anna they notice that her growth is not accelerating upward for weight but rather it's plateauing and the second thing that they notice is that this blood test says that her average blood glucose level over the past three months has been a little bit high now this is normal for puberty because a lot of physiological changes are happening during puberty, that affect the blood glucose level. But what else is going on? Something else is going on. But this time, this time, a clever doctor gives questionnaires, just good questionnaires, one to Anna and one to the mother. And on the questionnaire that was for Anna, uh, we learn two very important things that we didn't know before. Number one, Anna is she's skipping meals and more than occasionally. And number two, we learned that Anna is intentionally, not accidentally, but intentionally restricting her insulin doses. Why is she doing this? Well, because she knows that she can lose a little weight. And at the age of 12, uh, you know, body image is just everything. It just is. And so... Then from the mother's questionnaire, which is called the SDQ, or the Strengths and Difficulties questionnaire, we learn more valuable information that can help the patient. We learn that, in fact, from the mother's observations, that Anna is having increasing symptoms of anxiety and depression. Now, she does not have a diagnosis, but she has increasing symptoms in those, that disordered eating behavior and that those anxiety and depression are in fact the reason for her abnormal blood tests. They are contributing to this. And so that is not a small thing that we got some better information at that visit. That is a big deal for an individual like Anna. That's a big deal for a family. That's a big deal for a region, a region that is trying to do a better job of the healthcare system. And that is a big deal for a country like Denmark. Good questionnaires. Are important I know a lot of people think oh they're kind of boring Uh, you know what's the big deal they're not that fancy but actually they don't get enough credit Uh, good questionnaires can help to more effectively identify a wide range of medical and mental health conditions good questionnaires are are standardized and a representative a truly representative sample and a national sample so that they're less biased. Good questionnaires should be tested in research against gold standard tests or a battery of tests to make sure that they're valid or effective. Good questionnaires should be feasible. And when I say feasible, they should take about five, ten minutes to do. They should be easy to read. You should not need a PhD or an MD in order to read the questionnaire. They should be available in multiple languages, the languages that are most commonly spoken in the target population or country. And I think it's important to say as a physician that uh, good questionnaires, even on their own, should not be used to make a diagnosis. You should use good questionnaires in combination with a good history and physical exam. And finally, from my experience uh, implementing questionnaires uh, in the state of Oregon at a national level in the United States, I think that implementation is just everything, just everything when it comes to how you implement the, uh, the questionnaires. So I have a call to action. My call to action is this encourage doctors in the healthcare system to provide reliable and accurate questionnaires that can uh, better assess symptoms before a visit. And in particular, I think that good questionnaires are needed to accurately and reliably measure developmental milestones in uh, children zero to five years of age. And when a red flag is noted, no diagnosis needed here. Just help the family. Figure out what they need and help them. And second, in particular, Good questionnaires are needed to accurately and reliably uh, address or measure and address mental health symptoms in adolescence. Two areas where questionnaires can really help. And so, my final thing is this: it's not about labeling kids with a diagnosis. That is not what it's about. It's about getting a good history. And in medicine, getting a good history is just everything. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Kevin. Absolutely compelling story and important messages for us to think about. I have a question for you. I wonder if you can tell us during your research experience so far, what has been the most rewarding part of it?
1: Uh, well, I'm going to be a little nerdy here and say the most rewarding part about my research experience in Denmark has been the last paper that I'm hoping will get accepted at a journal. Um, and it's actually about one of the questionnaires I mentioned in this talk. It's about the strengths and difficulties questionnaire. We found out that it, this, these questions, these 25 questions, uh, some of them can really can uh, be used to predict glycemic control or the average blood glucose levels in children and adolescents. And I think that's fantastic knowledge that clinicians need to use. And I think it's interesting because it's not just about identifying anxiety and depression. It's about identifying other mental health symptoms as well. So that was super exciting to me to learn that new knowledge.
0: Would anybody like to ask Kevin a question? So you moved from the U.S. to Denmark? Yes. And that must have been a big cultural change as well. Yes. Um, so maybe you can tell us what, what is the, the one thing you would like to implement in the U.S. that Denmark is doing, right?
1: Okay, this is a bizarre answer, but retinopathy screening.
0: <laughs> <laughs> can, you,
1: can you elaborate
0: uh, a little bit on that? I,
1: I, uh, so I, I was working in the Danish registries, uh, and I was just so impressed at like how children and adolescents who... Um, are being monitored for diabetic retinopathy, which is a disease of the eyes, how it's being done in such a systematic, really impressive manner. At, you know, As a screening connoisseur, that was uh, something that really impressed me. But other things that have impressed me about the Danish system is equitableness. I think it could be more effective. I think they, you could do a lot better job of getting... Uh, better information in a 15-minute visit, or I question the whole premise of only having a visit being 15 minutes for a general practitioner. But there's more equitable care here. There's less economic disparities. And I think that makes a big difference with health outcomes.
0: Hi, Kevin. Uh, is there anything you think that we in Denmark could learn from the United States, or a way of doing it, something that, uh, yeah, that, that, that you're doing better over there?
1: Yeah, I think there are some things. I wouldn't adopt our system altogether. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there are some things that we can share with you. Uh, this may be already happening in Denmark, I'm not quite sure. But um, you know, we have a lot of patients that we have to see in a day. Usually it would be 22 or 24 kids and families that you have to see as a pediatrician. And um, so we had to develop a more effective system. And so we gathered a lot of our information In the history taking, over half of it was maybe done, maybe not half, but uh, at least a third before they walked in the exam room. So we're getting a lot of information that we need to know at that visit to identify problems and to make a diagnosis before they come in. And then we can kind of do, we can save more time for counseling. whether it's about their mental health, whether it's about a physical problem, and we can spend more time talking about what resources in the community can help them and then making sure that the parent understood what we just said. (laughs) So uh, if you only have a certain amount of time, you need to spend that time very effectively. And using it all to gather information is not a good idea. I think that questionnaires are something that could be used better in Denmark. That's my answer. Uh, Kevin, I have a question about the questionnaires. So we heard earlier today on a, another debate that some of the people uh, that these questionnaires are meant for are not able to read them or to mm-hmm. understand them. How will you be able to solve that with your questionnaires? Because I think they are one size fits all. Or mm-hmm. Yeah. So first of all, let's get back to the premise of you have to pick the best questionnaires. And we have to have them use in a planned and periodic manner, in a strategic manner. Uh, if you're going to do universal screening, the, uh, but if you're trying to reach populations that might come from a more disadvantaged family, we have to think outside the box and think it's not assured uh, the article says that this is great questionnaire, but we need to figure out how is this going to work for this family apps? are used a lot these days to, and you can, we have uh, an online service in Oregon where you can toggle back and forth between questionnaires in English and Spanish. Why can't that be done here? Uh, you can, you know, it's, it's not that hard. Uh, so using apps before a visit would be a great way to, for any medical condition, it could be for adults too, uh, just making sure that they're getting the things that they need to have identified identified quickly so because there's always this kind of preclinical phase before they have something if you can identify it early then then you usually get better results and that's how it is with young kids who have developmental delays and that's how it is with adolescents who have diabetes and mental health problems and you're trying to prevent them from having a severe condition like diabetic ketoacidosis or a severe hypoglycemia event yeah addressing the mental health problem or eating problem may make the difference and save Denmark some money
0: so i didn't quite grasp how many uh, items were in the questionnaire or in the but have you thought about developing short forms
1: yeah yeah. The, the, uh, size of the questionnaire is very important. Um, I think in the United States, we've come to the conclusion that we should not recommend a single questionnaire. You have to be more flexible about that. You should have to insist on criteria for what makes a good questionnaire, but you can't insist on the specific questionnaire that everybody should use because, uh, some clinics just don't have the time for that. Uh, it has to be an even more brief questionnaire. So, I think how many items are in the ASQ, about 30 to 35. How many items are on the Strengths and Difficulties questionnaire, which is used, and these two questionnaires are used around the globe, oh, 25. But um, the questionnaires should not be long. In some conditions, you have to be careful about giving too many questionnaires. Uh, physicians are humans. And so if you have to screen for the same thing at every visit, very quickly, the the physicians are going to develop a negative attitude about that questionnaire. (laughs) So think about the strategy about when is it the right time to ask the specific questions. Hi, Kevin. Thank you. That was great. I have a question, maybe a bit cynical, but are people always honest? Do they lie on these questionnaires? Do they say that they, you know... I I don't smoke or I don't, you know, I I only drink three units of alcohol a week. And, you know, you know, I know that's not necessarily for pediatric, um, but is there an equivalent, (laughs) if that makes sense? It depends upon what you're measuring. So when it comes to developmental milestones, I have find that actually you can definitely trust the mothers and the fathers, too. I think that they actually do know a lot about their child's. You know what they can and cannot do and they provide detailed nuanced answers about whether yes they're doing this milestone and it's been mastered or sometimes they're doing it and it's an emerging skill or not yet overall i think um, you can be cynical about questionnaires that have to do with substance abuse So in my experience, when we would see families in the United States and we would give them a questionnaire about uh, social determinants of health, and uh, there's a few questions about whether there might be an issue with substance abuse, I don't think that you can really trust the answers on those questions. But if you're talking about measuring mental health symptoms in a teenager, you know what? I think teenagers are sometimes more honest reporting it on a questionnaire than they are in a conversation face-to-face.
0: Kevin, this begs the question related to end-user involvement in questionnaire research. Is there a space to bring the end-users, the ones who are answering the questionnaires, into the research about the questionnaires?
1: Yes. And that needs to be done on a local level uh, with plan, study, do-action cycles. So whatever clinic or whatever system that is implementing a questionnaire, they do have to uh, solicit feedback from the end users to say, how is this process working out for you? Um, How could we make the process better? Did you understand the questions? What what do we need to do differently to make sure it works better?
0: Do you see that happening in the United States and in Denmark, or in only one of the places?
1: I don't know if I am smart enough or uh, have enough experience to truly answer that question, Mm -hmm. because I've been doing PhD stuff for the past three years. So I need to get (laughs) my feet wet before I can really answer that question.
0: So that relates to a final question, if I may have the final question. And that is, if you could go back in time and give yourself some advice before you took a step into Denmark to live here, to do your Ph.D. studies here, what would that piece of advice be?
1: To Molahil patience. (laughs) Tumolehil <laughs> uh, or patience is very important in Denmark for somebody coming here because there's a, a very complicated process. I had a goal. I wanted to get back to working as a pediatrician. I had to figure out ways to accomplish that goal, and it required uh, patience. Sometimes I think uh, that's important to just say that I need to be patient about this because sometimes it takes a while to get the goal. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you yep. for that honest and, and uh, uh, grateful answer. Let's all thank Kevin. <clears throat> Thanks for joining us on this first of two postdocs talking community specials from Bornholm. We hope Kevin's story has left you inspired and eager for more. Stay tuned for our second community event episode, where we'll journey a little farther away from home. I'm your host, Gretchen Rapaski, and I just want to say a warm thanks to the Danish Diabetes and Endocrine Academy for keeping postdocs talking. Thanks for listening.